Okay, we're going to start with Joshua now. And so here we have our opening cartoon to remember Joshua. It's conquest. You know, the memory keyword, the memory phrase is conquest. What's Joshua all about? Conquest. Conquest. This is General Joshua stomping out the cities of the pagan Canaanites. Now let's get into the background, our background information. The authorship. We don't know who wrote Joshua. It was probably an eyewitness because in the book we see that the, the writers say we did this and this happened to us. It's the use of that first person plural pronoun that indicates that he was part of the action. Um, furthermore, Rahab is in chapter 6 verse 25 seems to still be alive at the time he writes. So that suggests an, a participant, an eyewitness. Perhaps one of the priests, perhaps Joshua himself, but we don't know for sure. You go through the book of Joshua, you realize the Jebusites are still in control of Jerusalem. It hasn't been conquered yet. And several times the writer notes, that something is still present to this day. So that anchors it. it it's not legend. It, he's writing to people and say, look, you can go look at it right now. It's still there. You can go talk to Rahab. She's still alive. It is grounded in real history. It's not legend. So I mean, this is what, again, what liberals will say is this was written after the, con- after the uh, exile or about the time of the exile to give some sort of rationale and justification to their national existence. But as people who believe the Bible is the Word of God, uh, we believe it was written about the time of the events somewhere around uh, 1380 B.C. Sometime around 1380 B.C. The conquest begins in 1406, and it takes about 25 years to complete the conquest. Now, they didn't complete the conquest in the sense of conquering every city and every locale, but they gained control of the major districts, the major cities, uh, the major areas. So this occurs between um, 1406 and 1380, so it makes sense that the book wasn't written until the events it talks about were all completed. So we'll have a date of approximately 1380 B.C., circa 1380 B.C. What's the purpose for Joshua? The purpose was to demonstrate God's faithfulness to his promises in fulfilling the promises that he had made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised Joseph he would bring them back to the land. And so you always have this thing of coming back to the land. The land is a specific piece of, of uh, real estate. Now in terms of the canon and its location in the canon, what does the term canon mean again? Just a little review. Maybe it's the books of the Bible. Well, what does the word canon refer to? What? A rule or standard. It is a rule or standard. Because you don't just have the canon of the Bible. You have... Sometimes in education they'll refer to the canon of literature. These are the you know, standard books that you'd be expected to 
read in in uh, uh, course of education. So the canon of scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and 27 books of the New Testament. In the Jewish canon, they divided the books into three arrangements. Anybody remember those three arrangements? The writings, the writings, the prophets, and the law. Put them in order. Law, prophets, writings. Prophets, you had former prophets and latter prophets. The former prophets were Joshua, Judges, sometimes Ruth is included within Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, here's where we're going to have to re-educate ourselves biblically. What do you all think of when you think of the word prophet? What is the our prophecy? What do you think of? What is the key, primary idea that you have when you think of a prophet? Okay, somebody who is telling the future ahead of time. Okay? Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you knew I was going to say, you, you know, I saw that trap coming, but I had to step into it. Yeah. Uh, that's a secondary aspect. The primary aspect is a prophet functioned like a like a district attorney or attorney general. He is prosecuting the people with reference to their disobedience or obedience to the law. And in the course of that, a prophet would say, for example, Isaiah. What's Isaiah really doing? He's saying, you haven't obeyed the, the contract. You've been disobedient to the Constitution. Here's what God said. You've got to do this, 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 and this, and if you do it, you're going to be blessed. If you don't do it, I'm going to kick you out of the land. Well, you haven't done this, 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 and this, and God's kicking you out of the land. And this is what's going to happen in the future. But foretelling is always within the framework of prosecuting the law. So the prophet is a representative of God to man, and a prophet is... Is, is primary job is to uh, prosecute or put forth the standards of the law. So when we come to the former prophets, what are we showing? We're showing that in Joshua's case, that God is fulfilling his responsibilities under the law to give them the land. And if they're obedient to them, he's showing how their obedience leads to blessing and then how their disobedience led to judgment. And that really comes out in the book of Judges because as we go from Joshua, which is primarily obedience and conquest and blessing, Judges is disobedience and judgment. And then we come back up through another cycle in, in Samuel where it starts off with disobedience and judgment, where ju- Judges ends. And it ends, not the end of first Samuel, remember the original is one book, Samuel. It ends at the almost the apex of the Jewish kingdom with the death of David when they, and, and, and the beginning of Solomon's reign when they're at their best and they're been obedient to God and God has blessed them and prospered them and then we go through other cycles of judgment and uh, obe- disobedience and judgment and obedience and blessing all the way through the book of Kings until we end up with disobedience. But that's what why we refer to these as, as the former prophets. The Jews understood that. See, we, we come to the text and we think prophecy is, is, is foretelling. Now, where do you think the book of Daniel would be located within the divisions of the of Jewish Old Testament? Law, prophets, and writings. Where would Daniel fall? He's a prophet. You would think that, wouldn't you? 
because the book of Daniel is filled with prophecy. But Daniel wasn't a prophet. He didn't hold the office of prophet. He was a prime minister in a pagan kingdom. In the Jewish arrangement, he's in the writings because he's using the, the, the prophecy, the foretelling, is structured around the concept of teaching wisdom or how to live to the people. Daniel is really all about teaching the Jews who are out of the land how to live out of the land. How to be what? So it starts off, what happens? You have these young men and they're taken and they're put in a purely pagan environment and a pagan education system with a pagan diet. And, 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 and how do they live? What do they do? And, and then the prophecies are all designed to remind the Jews of God's faithfulness that even though they're out of the land, even though they've lost everything, even though everything's in chaos, God's going to bring them back to the land. So the purpose of the prophecy foretelling is a secondary idea. The primary idea is how do you live under discipline? How do you live out of the land? And and that's the primary idea. So the Jews didn't understand that as a... He's not functioning as a prophet, as a prosecutor of the Mosaic Covenant. He's functioning in telling people how to live out of the land. So this is why I say we have to have a little revision of our understanding of the, what these terms mean and how they're used within an Old Testament context. So Joshua is the first of the former prophets. And see, how much foretelling is there in Joshua? None. How much is there in Judges? None. How much is there in Samuel? None. You have very little foretelling in these books. There might be a verse or two or a hint here or there, but there's virtually no foretelling. So if you're going to call, if the Jews call that a book of the prophets, then you have to think in terms of, well, maybe I've got a slightly distorted view of what a prophet's primary responsibility was. Does that make sense? Does that leave you confused? See, this is the whole process of, you know, how Revelation, I mean, Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're here to get rid of bad ideas, the distorted ideas, and to, you know, learn to be think more, more biblically. <coughs> well, Joshua has always been considered a prophet in the Jewish organization. Remember, they had law, prophets, and writings. And it was always, the prophets was divided into former prophets and latter prophets. And so it was always considered a prophet. First of the former prophets, yes. Okay, Um, he's the first of the former prophets in the Nevi'im. That's the Hebrew word for the prophets. In the English Bible, Joshua is the first of the historical books. See, we look at this as just history, but that history has a purpose. It is designed to show, it's a highly editorialized history. It's designed to show the outworking of the blessings and cursings of the contract, of the Mosaic Law. That's why the Pentateuch is the foundation. And once you understand the structure of the Abrahamic Covenant as the foundation, as the source of blessing, it's unconditional. I, I, I was teaching on Israel this last week when I was up in Connecticut, 
And I came up with a new illustration, so I'll fly it by you. The Abrahamic covenant is God, who's the landlord, giving an ironclad, non-breakable lease to the leasee. The leasee is going to get to come and live in the house, live in the land. But if he doesn't take care of it, he's going to get evicted. It won't be taken away from him, but he can't live there for a period of time. And while he's out of the land, other squatters kind of move in. But God doesn't say they have a right to the land. He's given the lease to the, to the other people. And when their time of, of uh, punishment is up, they get to move back into the house. But what's happened? Squatters moved in. That happened in the 6th century B.C. after the Babylonians, and it's happening, of course, in, in, in our age. Arabs moving in. They don't have any right to the land. God didn't give it to them. Their name's not on the lease. They want to assert squatters' rights. Does that communicate? Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, it's, it's what? <laughs> well, no, God didn't give anybody a covenant. See, it only applies in one place because there's only one piece of real estate God's guaranteed to anybody. Nobody else has a, has a guarantee anywhere. And throughout history, you always have one people, you know, won over by another people. You know, if you want to get upset about it, let's go back. I want, you know, I want the British to give me back land in Ireland. Oh, they ran my Irish ancestors. You can't do that. That's just silly. This has been the course of the world. It's, we live in a fallen world. Empire replaces empire replaces empire. You know, one people group moves in and takes over from another. This is the course of history. Well, except for Israel, because Israel has a divine contract on the piece of real estate. So that makes it different. It's not, they're not like any other nation. Then we'll look at the structure of the book. And I give you the structure there. There's three parts. The first five chapters down to 512, God leads Israel to enter the land of Canaan. They have, Moses has died. They have mourned his death. And now God is going to lead them into the land of Canaan. Chapter 1 through 5.12. Then in chapters from 5.13 to 12.24, 5.13 to 12.24, God conquers the Canaanites to give the land to Israel. God is the one who is the general of the army. Everybody misses that on the test. God's the Lord of the army. It's not Joshua. It's God. The angel of the Lord (coughs) is the head of the army. And he conquers the Canaanites to give the land to Israel. They have it by grace, through faith. They trust God. They're not trusting in military skill. They're not trusting in military technology. Who ever heard of defeating an enemy by walking around the city seven times? Now that's not that's not the latest strategy taught at West Point or Sandhurst or any of the other military academies. You know, this is trusting God. And the question on the test is how did they how did they trust God? Trusting God isn't the issue. The tr- it's it's how do they trust God? They walked around the city. 
<laughs> right, Pearly? That's right. <laughs> See, you always win by trusting God, and you always lose by not trusting God, but I want to know the specifics. Okay? What did you do to trust God? What did they do to not trust God? That's the those are the those are the details. Okay, so God conquers the Canaanites to give the land to Israel and God apportions the land to the tribes. That's thirteen through twenty four. That's your that's basically nothing more than a real estate plot description. Tribe of Reuben's gonna have land from here to here and here to there and that's where they're gonna live and they're gonna have these cities and it gets pretty redundant. The point is, that's the land. So really, as we look at this, for our purposes and understanding the significance, our primary focus is just going to be on those first uh, 12 chapters or so and then pick up a little bit with Joshua's parting words at the end. Okay, let's get into the, the exposition of Joshua itself. First section, and I notice that I've got a typo there. See, I, it's, those, it's that number thing again. Five, actually, it goes to 512. That should be 1-1 one, one to 512. 1-1 one, one to 512. God leads Israel to enter the land of Canaan. First thing, God commissions Joshua. Yahweh commissions Joshua. He's going to set him aside as the leader to recognize that he is the leader in front of the people. And he's going to prepare Joshua for leadership. God has a right man for the right time and God prepares men for that role as leadership. God uses prepared men. That's why those of you who are here want to go into a pastoral ministry, you have to be prepared. You have to study uh, what's more important, learning how to fly an F-16 jet and leading people in their spiritual life? Leading, leading people in their spiritual life. So you go through how much training to fly an F-16 and how much training do most pastors get in comparison? So we've got a real distorted system here. Pastors have to handle the Word of God. There's nothing more serious than that. So that would necessarily mean that we have to have training and study, learn the original languages. When I teach at WHW, I always start with a quote, a quote from H.H. H. Rowley, who was a, uh, an Old Testament scholar, rather liberal, but he made a, made a point of saying, how many of you, if you were studying French literature, would take as authoritative the views of somebody who had never read French literature in the original French? And yet every Sunday we have thousands of men get into pulpits and expound the Word of God and they've never read it in the original language. Gets convicted. Okay. God prepared Joshua for leadership. First of all, Deuteronomy 34.9, we're told that Joshua was filled with a spirit of wisdom. Spirit of wisdom. What do we mean by wisdom in the Old Testament? This is the Hebrew word, hokmah. And it, the root idea is skill. The products of Western civilization, we think of wisdom in the Greek sense of knowledge and academic information. But that's not, uh, but philosophy isn't the concept in the Hebrew mind. It's skill at living, it's application, it's, it's knowing how to do something and to produce something of value. It's not just being able to tell you all the academic information, 
but being able then to use that and produce something of value and beauty. So, so it's it, he's built, he, he in this is what you want in a leader, somebody who can take take the academic theory. It's not that you don't need that; you need it, but you have to move from the from the academics to application. How many of you guys have a military background? Know anything about the military? One guy, two guys. In the military, they'll talk about doctrine. That there are certain military doctrines that you apply, and what doctrine is in the military sense takes you everything, everywhere, takes you everywhere from the drawing board. When you're trying to figure out, okay, how does a patrol, a mobile patrol, move through the streets of Baghdad in, hot, in a possibly hostile environment, all the way to, okay, their organization, their logistics, their armament, all the way down to to watching exactly what they're supposed to do under any given circumstance while they're there on the ground. And if something doesn't go right or the enemy changes its tactics, what do you do? You revise the doctrine. It isn't just the theory and strategy and tactics. It goes all the way down to operation. It includes the thickness of the metal on the Humvees, the uh, armament protections, what kind of weapons are going to be used, everything. It's all part of, that's the military concept of doctrine. That's really what the Bible refers to by doctrine. What's happened in our modern world is we've come along and we've made doctrine this kind of almost ivory tower theology, and application is something else. But the Bible doesn't see this artificial division. It moves all the way from the, what we would call the, the academic all the way to the application. You can't. The Bible doesn't see a distinction between the two. Right action comes from right thought. You can't separate it. So that's what a spirit of wisdom is. He's he's been mentored by a mature leader. He was with Moses at Mount Sinai, and he's been Moses with Moses all the way through the forty years in the wilderness. Exodus twenty-four. Uh, 13. He was uh, a guard at the tent of meeting in Exodus 33:11. So he's been with Moses, observing God, an eyewitness of much that happened. So that's his preparation. Then in the first um, chapter, we God instructs Joshua to lead the people. To lead the people in the land. Notice what he says. He says, uh, he appears to Joshua, Moses' assistant, and says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them. It's not a question of if they can take it. He is giving it to them. It's an absolute. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you every place. Verse four: From the wilderness, he gives the from the wilderness down here, the desert in the south, and 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 to Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. They never conquered it all. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Tremendous promise. All you have to do is trust God's promise. It doesn't matter. How many walled cities they have, doesn't matter how many people they have, doesn't matter how big they are. Because God plus one is a majority. 
God alone is in the choice. So what's the what's the challenge? The challenge is in, in verse five you have a uh, God promises to protect him, and in verse six through nine God teaches uh, Joshua that the real strength comes from obedience to His word. You have key words that are used again and again in the book of Joshua. Be strong is used nine times. Be courageous five times. Do not be afraid eleven times. Do not be dismayed three times. What's the point? Just relax. Have fun with it. We're going to win. Okay? And notice what he says. What's the key, though, to to Joshua's mental attitude? Verse 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Notice the connection there. You think about it so that you can do it. Okay? There's not this uh, 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 discontinuity between thought and action. Little principle. In, in many churches today, people come and say, "You know, Pastor, I, I, I need to be. I need application." They want to jump into application without learning how to think. What's the result going to be? Failure or a superficial Christianity? People who just want to know what to do without knowing why they're doing it, and that will always lead to failure. We have to know the thought as well as the practice. They're not separated. You meditate on a day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. What is the prosperity and the success talking about in context? Is this talking about having a, 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 a great 401k plan so that when, they, when Joshua retires he, he will have been prosperous and everything will be great? Conquest of the land. Yeah, that's right. Context is conquest of the land. It's not talking about material blessing. It's not talking about agricultural or financial or health. It's talking about in context, you will defeat the enemy and you will conquer the land. Okay, then God orders them to cross the Jordan in verses 10 to 18. He, they, they're prepared to enter the land and they are to uh, prepare provisions for, and they have three days to get ready and then they're going to go in to possess the land. And they're going to start off with rest and that rest is related to what's going on in the land. Now notice, what kind of rest are they going to have in the land? A rest from their enemies. Is this a rest that is without responsibility? No. no. They're going to become couch potatoes in the land? No. No. I'm going to take a break tomorrow. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit around and watch football all day. No, that wasn't God's idea of rest. The rest isn't a cessation from all activity. It is, uh, in, in the context here, it is a rest from being oppressed from their enemies. So they're going to go into the land. The punishment for not obeying Joshua. See, all the tribes have to go in. Even the tribes who are going to be in the Transjordan area, they all have to fight together. There's a unity in the nation. And if anyone did not obey Joshua, the penalty was death. 
verse 18. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words will be put in the stockade for 30 days. No. No. Don't say that. God's tough. God's tough. They shall be put to death. Okay, then we come to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we see how God uses a prostitute to protect the spies. Joshua comes up, they cross over the Jordan. Frankly, it's not very far from, from where they cross the Jordan to Jericho, maybe, maybe 20 miles. You can see it in the distance. It's not very far. It's just, just as you look across, you see the hills of Ephraim there coming down to the Jordan River Valley, and you just see that right up in that little valley, that's where Jericho was located. And so they don't have to go very far. Now, if you were in Jericho, what are you thinking? Yeah, you got maybe two million people sitting across the river, and you've been watching them for a while. You've heard reports about how they've defeated Og and Sihon and all of these others. Now, we learned something interesting from Rahab. Remember, why was it that, that they didn't trust God to go into the land? What were the three reasons that they didn't trust God? The wall cities. But what we learned from Rahab is what the Canaanites were thinking when the spies came into the land. Think about it. See, they, they come into the land... And when, when Rahab says to these two spies, Joshua sends two spies in to do a little reconnaissance in Jericho, and when uh, she's talking to them, she says to them in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. <coughs> this must have been common knowledge. Israel's God's given us this land. And I also know that the terror of you has fallen on us. You think that those ten spies were afraid when they went in the land? Those ten spies weren't as afraid as the Canaanites. Because the Canaanites had heard about Pharaoh. They had heard about the plagues in in Egypt. They had heard about the Jews coming across the Red Sea. Sea. Because where did the Jews go? They went down, they, they, they camped out for a year down at Mount Sinai. Well, they camped out for a year, word got around. So when the spies are going into the land, they're afraid... And they don't need to be because the people they're looking at are more scared of them than they are of the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. See, they just failed to trust God in the situation. Isn't that and they know? let the details bother them. Yes. Isn't that believable in that way? Well, he'll conquer us when we, yeah. when we fail to believe it was God. Yeah, we, we put our eyes on the details of life. So... What happens here? Joshua sends out two spies secretly, but they're quickly discovered. I mean, these, the, the people of Jericho know what's going on right away. I mean, this is one of the world's worst kept secrets. And we know about Rahab that she was a prostitute and a liar. But Rahab's mentioned in Hebrews 11 because she trusts God. See, God's in the business of using fallen people, and he extends grace. 
Now, I have a lot of questions about Rahab. There's a lot of discussion about Rahab's lie as to whether this is legitimate or not. And I, 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 in fact, I called up a friend of mine. I have a friend of mine who's quite bright. He has three earned PhDs and four earned masters, and he's working on his fifth at Oxford right now. And he's a chaplain, and he teaches military ethics at the Naval War College in uh, up in uh, Rhode Island. And he and I were in seminary together many, many years ago. And I called him up. I said, you know, you got your three basic positions which are in your notes of how to deal with Rahab's lie. Either, A, it wasn't a lie, or it's you know, some kind of situational ethics or a variation of that. Or it was a lie, but she could have done something else. And I tend to go with that view if I can't develop another one. But my thinking is that in military circumstances, there is a basis for deception. And, but I, and I called him up. He said, you know, I've never read anybody develop that on Rahab. That, that's, that's interesting. But see, you look at what we, what we as a nation do in war. You look at, even God uses deception at the second battle at the Battle of Ai. There's a faint. You know, we're going to send 5,000 guys over here, and they're going to attack, and then they're going to pull back and, uh, and fake it. And that's going to pull everybody out of the city, and then the, the main body of troops is going to come in with an ambush, and we're going to kill everybody. You know, that's running a deception. So I, my personal view is that Rahab's loyalty is to God. God has given the land to the Jews. And so what she is doing is protecting them in a time of war. And so there's a difference there. If Rahab's deception is illegitimate, then what do we do? And I don't know what the answers are. I'm just raising questions in your head. What do we do with, with believers who are functioning in the military and covert operations? What do we do with, with Christians who are working for the... Uh, uh, federal drug enforcement in whatever capacity, FBI or, or whatever, and they're going undercover. Uh, what do we do with that? We have to have a, 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 a clear, legitimate ethical framework whereby you're, you're, you can legitimize covert and undercover operations of this type. And I think that's, that's, that's where I would end up in trying to uh, work through this. I haven't had... Uh, uh, a lot. I haven't read anything on that. I have a number of friends who are in the military, and they. Uh, this is something we we talk about a lot, trying to work these things through. Now Rahab's got a tavern. Now, uh, this was a place that it, it wasn't. She's not running a brothel. She's running a tavern. But in the sexually promiscuous environment of uh, Canaan. Um, that was just one of the many services provided in the local tavern. What you say? So they come in to look out the land, and they uh, go to the tavern there, which would have been located near the entry gates. And word gets out, and the king of Jericho says, okay, go down and, and get those men. So they come to Rahab, and they say, bring out the men who have come to you, been at your house. And she knows that if they come out, they're going to die. So she says, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. That's, that's the lie. That's, that's, that's the deception. So that's what we have to figure out. Now, 
what we learn here is that she's blessed. Later on, she becomes an ancestress of Boaz and Jesus. It's interesting to look at the women who are in Jesus' family line. We have you know, Rahab the prostitute. We have Ruth the Moabitess. You have Bathsheba the adulteress. What's the message? Anybody. It's grace. Grace. That's the message. Rahab also knew the events of the Exodus in verse 9. And so, notice what Hebrews 11 says, and I've got it there in your notes. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now, it's very important to, to notice what that verse says and doesn't say. It doesn't say that by, by faith, by faith she lied. It doesn't say that. It has to do with, the, with her attitude towards the spies welcoming them. It's, Hebrews 11 isn't saying all of her contact, con, conduct was, was morally right. And it's not validating everything that she did. 3D is a point I've already made. Uh, her statement shows that the Canaanites were more afraid of Israel than Israel was of the Canaanites. Now at the bottom of the page I give you the basic ethical options. You can read over them. I'm not going to give you a quiz on them. But you need to be aware of them. The first is that there's two options here. She can either let the two spies be killed or she can lie. Now, which sin is worse? Okay, this is called choosing the lesser of two evils. So I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to choose to lie rather than let them be killed. Now, the weakness with this view is that how can people be held accountable for sin when and if sin is the only option? Sometimes because you make bad decisions or sinful decisions, you put yourself in a trap where about the only way out is to sin. Okay? So how can people be held accountable for sin if that's really the only option that seems to be available to them? So the problem with this view is that it can lead to a situational ethic or moral relativism. A stronger view that's similar to that one is the second view I've listed is called hierarchicalism or graded absolutism. And that's saying that you have absolutes are different values. So some absolutes are really big absolutes and others are smaller absolutes. And so when there's a conflict between the two, you you don't violate this one. So therefore it's not a sin to do this, to preserve this. Now the difference between option one and option two is option one recognizes that you've got a greater sin and a lesser sin, but they're both sins. In this view, when there's a conflict between a lower standard and a higher standard, and you protect the higher standard, then the lower standard isn't sinning. Dr. Bing, wouldn't it all boil down to Erethea's selfish ambition? She did not have any... No, no, that's right. She doesn't. She doesn't. That's, that's why, you know, she's not doing this as a self-serving thing. 
But see, we can still do good things for people that are, it's, it's not necessarily right. You don't think she's trying to stay alive? Sure. No, no, I don't think she's necessarily trying to stay alive. The, the, the text doesn't suggest that she's in danger. But I mean, when, she, when danger. y'all come back to, right. to wipe about and never believe them. They're in danger. But the thing that impresses me about this, I mean, the third view that, that people take is the fact that uh, non-conflicting absolutes, that's the third position I have, and that is, and look, Rahab was, Rahab was wrong. Rahab sinned by lying. She could have done something else. You know, she could have hidden them better. She could have uh, said, yeah, come on in, search the house, you know, go here, go there, you know. She could have that too often what happens when we think we're in a trap and we only have two options, there are really other options we just haven't thought of. And so that's, that's the third option. But as I said, I'm holding out for a fourth option. <laughs> that fourth option is the Bible never, even in this chapter, never condemns her for this deception. It's never condemned. And I believe, like I said earlier, that in in warfare, there are legitimate times of, and in law enforcement, legitimate times of of covert deception. And, And I think that's something that needs to be developed and worked with. Okay, then after this, they're protected... There's a promise that when they come that she will live, she and her family. Then we come back. That takes place during the three days that everybody's getting ready. In chapter 3, Israel comes across the Jordan. Israel comes across the Jordan. This will be on page, what page is this? Five. God miraculously led Israel across the Jordan, chapters 3, chapters 3, 4, and 5. So the people form up, and as usual, they are led by the Ark of the Covenant. God is going before them. That's this symbolism here. God is the one who is leading the people. But before they can enter into the land, something has to happen. The people have to sanctify themselves. I guess I don't have a slide on that. People were, this is 2D, before entering the land, the people were commanded to sanctify themselves. This is chapter 3, verse 5. Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. They have to deal with... Now, are these people saved? Yeah. But they have to be cleansed because they're going into what? Holy War. They are going into Holy War, so there has to be, and all through Scripture you see this principle that if God's going to use you, there has to be cleansing. That's why in the New Testament, where do we have that? 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All the way through Scripture, you always have this principle that, that even if you're saved, there still has to be cleansing for service. Because we all sin. We say things, do things, think things that are wrong. And, there, and even though our sins are positionally forgiven at the cross, when we commit sins, they do uh, fracture that relationship, that fellowship with God, and there has to be restoration. So, 
they're commanded to sanctify themselves, so they have to uh, make sure that they are uh, cleansed and ready to go into the land. And so then they go into the land, and they they have to trust God. They're going to come up to the to the to the Jordan. Now Jordan doesn't run now like it did then because they have so much water diverted into uh, irrigation now that at this point it's rather low, and you wonder. Why didn't they just walk across? <laughs> but back then, it was this was springtime. Remember, this is they celebrated the Passover earlier. It's like a couple months, about a month after Passover, so it's in April. It's springtime, spring rains, it's at flood stage. The priests are going to carry the ark, and they have to come to the bank of the river. I don't know how many of you have ever been that close to rivers, but banks. It's not always just an easy walking. I don't know what it was like right there. Maybe it so it may have been an easy walk in. But they have to come, and it's not until they're about, their foot's about an inch away from the water as they're stepping into it that it instantly stops. But they have to go through that process of their trusting God. Not only just sit back and say, well, God, when you stop the river, then I'll go. <laughs> no, I'm going to trust you, and they're moving out on that principle, and they, their foot never hits the water. It just goes right down, the water stops, and it hits dry ground. So we know that the Jordan's at flood stage. It was a mile wide in some places, and the water wasn't stopped until their feet virtually touched water, almost touched water. Faith requires that we believe before we step. And then as they cross over, they set up a rock cairn, 12 big stones. And let me tell you, these weren't little rocks. Get over to that part of Israel, there are big rocks everywhere. They didn't have to look around for rocks. It's everywhere. And they got some of these, some huge, huge rocks. And they put them out there and they build this monument from 12 stones for the 12 tribes. Why? History. So you didn't think history was important. But see, history is God's history, it's God's plan. So history, three or four generations down the road. Kids come along and say, hey, Daddy, how come you got, we got this big hollow rocks over here? Well, let me tell you what God did. See, God doesn't have to take every generation across the Jordan. He only has to do it once, and that's good for history, forever, because it's just as real today as it was then. See, we want God to still heal people, like Jesus to still heal people like he did when he first came. He only had to do it once. He didn't do it in every generation. He establishes his, his credentials once, and that's enough for history. So they set up these 12 stones at a place called Gilgal. And this is in chapter 4. Then God has to set them apart when they enter the land. They come into the land, and they set up these uh, their memorial stones at Gilgal. And now what has to happen? This second generation, chapter 5, has to be circumcised. Circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, circumcision, they, they hadn't circumcised them in the wilderness, so what did, they get, what, what did the Abrahamic covenant promise? Land. Land, seed and blessing. So they're going to go into that land, and the, the, the circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That's That's... Part of the, the symbolism that's going on here, and so uh, they are circumcised, 
And the Lord says to Joshua in verse 9, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That's why they call it Gilgal. It means to roll away. And then they, excuse me, I misspoke earlier. I said that they had already observed the Passover. This is where they observed the Passover there. They observed the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. They ate the produce of the land after the Passover, unleavened bread, parched ground the very same day. And then verse 12 says, then the manna ceased. See, why does the manna cease? Because they're in the land. And now they have the produce of the land to eat. So God ceases the manna. And that's where we have have the bread. So, in terms of your fill in the blank, the twelve stones are set up at Gilgal. What I, did I, have I left something out? Did I go past something? Okay, let's back up a little bit. 3E. Yeah, it's earlier. It's, it's up about three or four lines. It's dealing with when they parted the Jordan, the last statement there, the water was not stopped until the priest's feet touched the water. Faith requires we believe before we step. We believe before we step. Then 5 is the 12 stones were set up at Gilgal. And then 1D, circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. No males were born in the wilderness. No males born in the wilderness had been circumcised. So circumcision is an act of covenant remembrance and renewal. It's a reminder. You guys have a permanent contract with God for the land. It's a permanent lease. And now he's giving you the land. So it's an act of covenant remembrance and renewal. Yeah, it's a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what they're being reminded of is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. The name Gilgal means, is a Hebrew term for rolling because God rolled back the reproach of Egypt. Okay, now we come to the second division. God conquers the Canaanites to give the land to Israel. 513 to 1224. God ceased the miraculous provision for food because they were now in the land promised by the Abrahamic covenant. You got a blank there? Oh, there's nothing there. Okay, chapters five, five thirteen to twelve twenty four. Now in 5.13 to 15, God is going to establish himself as the commander of the Lord's army. came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. As they're approaching Jericho, the first battle, he lifts his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So this is the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who is the commander of the army of the Lord. The Hebrew word for army is sabaoth. You know, when you sing, uh, Mighty Fortress is our God, Lord Sabaoth, that's the Hebrew term for army. Sometimes it's Old English translated in hosts. Okay, but if you look up host in a dictionary, host is an archaic word for army. So he's the commander-in-chief of the army of the Lord. So then Joshua recognizes who he is and falls down on his face to worship him and says, what does the Lord say to his servant? So this is clear indication that this person is God. He has to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. So God gives him instructions. Chapter 6, we get into the instructions for victory over, over Jericho. And he gives them uh, directives in verses 6 to 7. On the first six days, the men of war were to march one time around the city in silence. Once around. So they take a good bit of time. Get up early in the morning, move 600,000 people around the city. Then on the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times and blow on the ram's horn. That took most of the day. And towards evening, they would blow on the ram's horn. We have the descriptions given in verses 8 down through 16 and 15 and 16. They blow the horn, the walls fall down. And archaeological discoveries has confirmed this on the side of Jericho that the walls fell outward. But it's set on kind of a hilltop. So when the walls fall outward, what does that create? Creates, creates a nice little ramp for getting into the city. You know, God multitasks. <coughs> Excuse me. God multitasks. He's just... It's just amazing. So he just, God orders that everything to be, is to be destroyed except for Rahab and her family. In verses 17 through 19. The city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot, shall live. She and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And so they are to abstain from cursed things. All the Verse 19, all the silver and gold, vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. So everything of value is consecrated to the Lord. Why? It's going to be used to create furniture and things like that later on in the temple. And and all the um, all the men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkey, everything's supposed to be killed. And then at the end, when we come down to verse 26, Joshua charged them at the time, "Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn." And with his youngest, he will set up its gates. There's a curse. Now, that's fulfilled during the time of Ahab. When Ahab is king, later on in 1 Kings 16, we're told about uh, a man who rebuilds Jericho 
and his firstborn dies, and when he finishes the city, his youngest dies. Mm-hmm. And that just shows how callous they had become in the in the northern kingdom of Israel of paganism that they didn't care about their children. I have a cut out there in your notes, a close work look at holy war. The command for holy war comes from God through Moses. The Canaanites should have been taken out a long time before, but God has extended his grace for over 500 years to give them an opportunity to change their mind and turn toward God. God, as the ultimate ruler of the universe, has the right to completely judge sin and determine who will live and who will die. Notice, holy war is not a tool of expanding the gospel. Not like Islam. Islam, the way you expand the religion is through conquest and holy war, jihad. But that's not how, what holy war is in the Bible. It is the destruction of God's, uh, of God's enemies, period. It's not for the expansion of the, uh, of the religion. The holy war was for the destruction of God's enemies. Yeah, of those who had disobeyed God. Just in Canaan. It's not for anybody else. It was limited in time and space. Hmm? So the Crusades were not really holy. No, they weren't. No, the Crusades weren't holy. In fact, what happens in the Crusades is Roman Catholic theology is really perverted by the 11th and 12th century. And what what is beginning to impact the thinking in the West is the version of holy war in, in Islam. We're going to go conquer them. Now, one of the things that you weren't ever taught about the Crusades is one of the reasons that the Crusades were started is because uh, the Muslims, who are such uh, respectful, caring, loving people of other religions, were destroying all of the holy sites for both Christians and Jews in the Holy Land. And if you go to Israel today and you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, on one end, it's really it, what, this one thing really surprised me when I was there is how close the cross was to the grave. Well, less probably 50 yards at the most. But and, and so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre covers both sites. But when you go to where the grave was, all you do is you sit down and you look at a piece of plexiglass in the floor and you look at rock underneath the floor because there's no grave there anymore. There's no hillside. There's no tomb. What happened to it? The Muslims destroyed it. They chiseled the whole mountain away. They're, they're such respectful people. Of course, whenever we say anything or think anything about anything that they do, they riot. They're peaceful. Religion of peace. So, um, no, the Christianity is spread by word of mouth. And the Crusades were not in obedience to any commands of Scripture and not consistent with any teaching of Jesus. But holy war is not only consistent with what Muhammad did, it is commanded in the Quran. So the Crusades are an exception and in contradiction to Christianity, but jihad holy war is consistent with and mandated by Islam. Okay, back to 
So Holy War in the Bible was limited in time and space. Okay, let's let's move on now before we run out of time. Jericho's destroyed in chapter 6, uh, but there's a problem. And this comes up in chapter 7. Chapter 7 teaches, God teaches Israel, this is 3D, God teaches Israel the importance of sanctification for victory. See, they've got sin in the camp. Sin's in the body. They, they, they disobey God, and so they can't have victory. It's, uh, they go into battle. They do what God says to do, but they do it the wrong way. They do it with sin. So once again, it teaches a principle that a right thing done in the wrong way is wrong. They send out, in the beginning of, uh, of chapter 1, they send out about 3,000 men to go attack Ai, and they're defeated. And they're defeated because of disobedience. And you go through the process. Uh, we have the summary of God's judicial action in verse 1. We learn that Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerosia, locks him down in space-time. This isn't just some legendary figure. That he took some of the accursed things, some of the things that were under the ban. And so the anger or the justice of God, the anger of God, burns against the children of Israel. So they go through the next step. They're going to go to Ai, but they're defeated. And so now what does Joshua do? Down in verse 7 through 9, Joshua panics and blames God. Does that remind you of anything? Mm-hmm. What? Adam, it's the woman you gave me, God. See, we just blame God for, for, for everything. And so he started, Lord, you brought me and the people over the Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites and to destroy us. He's just whining again. But God says, well, I really recommend him. Get up. Why are you on your face? Israel has sinned and they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded you. So now we've got to sanctify the people. See, there's that issue of cleansing again. Got to sanctify the people. So they're going to start through this process and they're going to go through, get all the tribes out the next morning and they're going to go through every tribe and then God's going to identify the tribes and they're going to go through every clan in the tribe. He's going to define the clan. He's going to go through every family until he nails down Achan. And then finally Achan has to confess his sin. And what does he say in verse 20? Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I have done. See, notice, this is what confession is. Confession is saying, Lord, forgive me for my sins. How general and irrelevant that is. You know, it's confession of your sin. That doesn't mean you have to crawl, grovel, have remorse, but it's, you know, God saying, God, I lied. I've been angry. I've been bitter about this. It's identifying your sins and admitting them to God, not just being generic and saying, you know, Lord, I sinned. You know, we're not dealing with generalities here. He says, he, he, this is what I've done. He explains what I've done. And he explains it in the next couple of verses. So they went and they found, and they, they dug up what he had buried under his tent. And then they took him into the midst of the tent, brought, uh, verse 24, where Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, took the silver, the garment, the gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, 
his big screen TV, you know, everything. Cell phone, cell phone, computer, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. See? The writer is saying, see, you can go there. And it's a reminder of the severity of divine justice. You're talking about this day, though. Right, not this day. So it just shows us that when the writer wrote this, it was very close in time to when these events when these events took place. Okay. Now let's skip down to um, thought question. Thought question. Are stoning and burning at the stake forms of capital punishment that are barbaric? No. Hmm? This is on about the middle of page nine. You have a thought question there. See, we have a clause in our in our Constitution that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. What is it? Hmm? What would, who would be the judge if it's cruel or unusual? Well, now, what, what a principle of interpretation of the Bible is that we interpret the Bible in the time in which it was written, right? Mm-hmm. So let's look at what was considered cruel and unusual punishment at the time that was written in the 18th, 18th century, 1700s. See, if they were going to execute somebody then... Uh, and this happened at times. Anybody, you all see that movie Braveheart, Braveheart with, uh, about William Wallace uh, with Mel Gibson? Anybody ever see that? Well, the movie, I mean, it's just a gross death. When they executed him at the end, but the reality was much worse. I mean, they would have these executions where they would, would take you and they would literally peel the skin. And in the ancient world, they, the Assyrians did this. They'd have contests to see how far they could peel the skin off of you and leave you alive. Skin you alive. Or they would put a little, little, little incision in your intestines and pull out your intestines and ta- attach them to a dog and let the dog, and then chase the dog around. The American Indians used to do that. This would be considered cruel and unusual punishment. Okay? Hmm? At that time. At that time, that was cruel and unusual punishment. Stoning and burning at the stake is not. That was not. I mean, they were they were hanging people. They were stoning them. They were doing these things, and, and, and that was considered acceptable capital punishment. But today, we what, what's happened is there are many people in this country whose view is that any form of capital punishment is by definition cruel and unusual. Yeah. So they're going to fight any form of capital punishment. It can be with an injection. It can be um, it, it can be an electric chair. All these are because so when they burn the priest at the stake, that wasn't cruel and unjust. When they burn the priest, those priests at the stake, that wasn't, who, who wasn't that? that cool? Oh, oh. When uh, the man was trying to write the Bible, Luther. You, you're, thinking, you're thinking of, of uh, during the Reformation. And they burned those priests, wasn't in, in, that? In the Re- Reformation. Uh, let me, let's, let's think about the mindset of the framers of the Constitution in the 1780s. What was considered acceptable capital punishment and what was unacceptable 
they were they were really dealing with some really bizarre forms of torture. Okay? Now, see, that's the problem that we have today is we want to take certain our own we want to read things back and and punishment is punishment. We've gotten away from that in our society. Remember I talked about the fact that that people tend to think of man as either basically good or basically bad. If he's basically good, then the purpose of the penal system is to improve him, rehabilitate him. But if man's basically bad, the purpose of the penal system is to punish him. Well, think about that in capital punishment. Capital punishment is designed to punish people. It it should be a horrible death as opposed to a cruel and unusual death. See, but we think that any kind of death is cruel and unusual. Any kind of execution is cruel and unusual. Uh, All I'm saying is that, that... God authorizes this, so by definition, it can't be cruel and unusual. Oh, okay. I was See? just thinking, why would they, I mean, to burn those priests to me, yeah. they were trying to get God's word oh, out, sure. was cruel. Sure, and they tortured him in the process, and that was considered cruel and unusual. Okay. But burning at the stake, in some sense, wasn't, but sometimes they would protract it for days. That would be come under cruel and unusual. Okay, what we learn in this is the importance of obedience. I don't have a fill in the blank here. Do I have a fill in the blank there? Okay. It illustrates the spiritual principle of the book, that, which is obedience to God's covenant brings blessings. So what we learn, I have three bullets there. Success only comes by abiding in God's word. Success only continues by abiding in God's word. And failure comes because of sin. I'll repeat those. Success only comes by abiding in God's word. They can't have victory to begin with unless they're obedient to God. They can't continue to be successful unless they're obedient to God. So success only continues by abiding in God's word. And then third, failure comes because of sin. Then we come to the uh, let's get down. We've covered most of that seventh chapter. Um, we see a progression there. One thing I note there later on, we see a progression at the top. This is the top of page ten. Uh, Aiken says, "I saw among the spoils. I coveted them and took them. So there's a progression. I saw, I coveted, and then I took them. And so that's a parallel to the events in the Garden of Eden. I saw them, I coveted them, I took them. Same thing Eve says. Look, she saw, she coveted it, and then she took it. Key principle here is that one person's sin affected everybody, didn't it? And so, my sin affects everyone. And that introduces something called the law of unintended consequences. The law of unintended consequences. We may think that we're going to do something that just involves me in secrecy, but when things get exposed, it affects all kinds of other people. And all kinds of things happen. We didn't intend to happen. 
Now in chapter 8 we have described the fall of Ai. The fall of Ai. God again gives Joshua the tactics to conquer Ai. He is He's given the land to them. I want you to think about this. God gives blessing. He gives them the land. The land was given to Abraham. See, God has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing. You're not out there trying to get blessing. You're not going to get more blessing because you pray more, because you learn more scripture and go to church. You know that? No, a lot of people teach that. You know, if you want to get blessed, you've got to do this. No, that's not it. The way to think about blessing is, is this. I'll draw a little diagram up here. When, uh, when you got, when you were born, you had a basic problem in that you, God was up here and He was perfect righteousness and He was absolute justice. His righteousness sets a standard. His justice applies the standard. And that standard is perfect righteousness, but we're minus R, so justice condemns us. Now Jesus, over here on the cross, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So our lack of righteousness was imputed to Him on the cross. But His perfect righteousness is then imputed to us at salvation. And that's justification. Now see, God blesses us because His righteousness sees the righteousness of Christ. Does that ever vary? No. It's the same today for you as it was the day you believed. So blessing comes to us not because of what we do, but because of what we already have. Now that's like uh, that's like uh, you're, you're a parent. And you are your Bill Gates. And you have a child that's just the apple of your eye. So you go out and you buy him a, uh, I don't know, Maserati. Okay? He's six years old. You're going to give him the keys? Why not? He'll kill himself. You're going to wait until he matures. Is it still his when he's ten? Sure. So his when he's 15, you may not give it to him until he's 25, but it's his. See, those blessings are already ours. We're not, we're not doing things to get the blessings. We need to grow up so that God will distribute the blessings when we can handle it. Because if God gives us things when we can't handle it, He'll destroy us. So it's about spiritual maturity. We got to grow up. It's not about getting things. Because as long as you're thinking it's about getting blessing from God, you're not growing up. It's about serving God. And when we get to that point of maturity, when it's all about God and it's not about us, then we realize those, whatever the blessings are, they may be material, they may be spiritual, they can come in different categories. And that's what we see here, pictured here, is God gives the land to Israel positionally in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. But they only can realize its, its enjoyment by being obedient to God and trusting Him. And as they trust Him and as they grow, then God gives them the land. So God determines not only the end, which is their owning the land, but that in order to have it, 
you have to do it the right way. You can't. When 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 they go to Ai, God gives them a different set of instructions than when they conquered Jericho. They've gone to Ai and walked around the city. Nothing would have happened. See, you got to do the, do it the right way. So God, Joshua sets up an ambush. He sets up thirty thousand men outside the city to set up a decoy and an ambush, and then he they're they're out to the west of the city. Let me see if I can draw this up here. You have the city here, so you have thirty thousand over here. You have your main army up here to the north. And then another group of 5,000 is going to be set out here. Here's AI over here. You're going to set another 5,000 over here to secure the cutoff. So if they try to run to uh, Bethel and AI uh, to get help, they'll get, they'll, get, uh, they'll get cut off. So he leads the men into the trap. This is described in verses uh, 14 through 17. And they send in the He takes the five thousand men, sets them out there in ambush on the west side of the city. When they set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, they go into the midst of the valley. And it happened when the king saw it that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle. He and all his people at an appointed place in the plain, but he did not know that there was an ambush against it. So when uh, uh, Joshua takes the main army and comes out here, that pulls the men out from Ai, and they get hit from their flight by the 30,000, and they get trapped, and, and that defeats them, and then they go in and they kill uh, everybody, and they lose 12,000. The people of Ai lose 12,000. Verse 25. Then they go from there to Mount Ebal. I'm going to go find a map. Okay, here's a map. See, right up here you have Mount Ebal, and Mount Gerizim, right outside of Shechem. They came up on the west, on the east side of the Dead Sea, coming far to the east, and they came in. Here's Mount Nebo, where Moses died. And they come in, and they cross the Jordan right here. Right there is Jericho. See how close Jericho is to the crossing. Then they leave Jericho, and Ai is located uh, up here. And then they move from there, and they're headed north. And they go to Mount Gerizim and, uh, and Mount Ebal. And they put six tribes on one side and six tribes on the other side. And they have, again, a renewal ceremony. See how often they have to be reminded of their obligations? I want to go to church every Sunday. We've got to be reminded again and again and again of, uh, of God's work. But now they're going to get deceived in verse 9. Or chapter 9. Chapter 9, we have a treaty with the Gibeonites. Now, uh, these people are described 
as being uh, very crafty. It's uh, the same word that's used to describe Satan in chapter in cha- uh, Genesis chapter three, verse one. This is in uh, nine four. They worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. So they go through this huge ruse. They come from 20 miles away, but they go through this whole ruse where they dress up in worn-out clothes, and they have worn-out sacks, and they come to Joshua and say, See, all this was brand new, and we left. We've been traveling a long way. Now it's all worn out. And Joshua falls for it, and his failure is because he fails to seek God's counsel. He thinks he can interpret reality without revelation. Very important lesson. God allows them the freedom to fail. This is a tough thing for people to learn is if God's going to give you freedom to succeed, he's got to allow freedom to fail. What does that look like? Freedom to fail means that human beings can make horrible decisions. Horrible decisions can look like the Holocaust, where millions of people die. But for God to not allow that to happen shuts down the whole process. God gives man freedom to succeed and fail, freedom to sin and freedom to obey him. And sometimes this looks horrible in history. Well, people want to get bitter about things like that. I know uh, 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 there, there are many Jews that you talk to and they are very bitter. How could God let this happen? I'm mad at God. They don't understand basic principles of, of, of volition and sin and evil in history. For God to stop things means that he's got to stop everything. But as long as he continues history where people have the ability to choose to obey him, People also have the ability to choose to disobey him and to do horrible things. And people around this world do horrible things. I mean, Hitler was terrible. Stalin was worse. Hitler probably killed, responsible for killing about 10 million. Stalin may have been guilty of killing 60 million. But that's just the depravity of the human heart. Well, that was his major thing. Yeah, this was a, this was a major failure for Joshua. He fails to consult God. His failure is that he bases his decision solely on human reasoning and logic apart from God. He's not listening to revelation. But when the deception is discovered, it has to be honored. Nevertheless, the consequences remain. This tells us something that even that we even have to honor our obligations, even when other people are dishonorable. As my mother used to put it, too wrong, don't make it right. The immediate consequences brought slavery to the Gibeonites, but they're long-range events because they become part of a rebellion and a revolt against Saul, uh, against uh, David in 2 Samuel 21, 1-9. And later on, this coalition of Gibeonite cities uh, becomes a further factor in dividing the land between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So there's long-range consequences for Joshua's failure. It's not just a problem then. It allows this sore, as it were, within the uh, 
within the country to fester and it creates problems hundreds of years down the road. Then in chapter 10 we see how God provides uh, victory over the southern alliances of the Amorites. What happens is that we come, the Jews come around the, the east side of the Moabites and the Ammonites, cross the, conquer the Transjordan. Then they come in and they, first, they begin by conquering the central highlands here. Then they move north and they conquer your main uh, positions up north and then they go south and, and take care of the south. And that consolidates uh, the conquest. Excuse me, I got that backwards. They go south first and then north. And that consolidates their position. So in chapter 10, they deal with the southern alliance under Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek means Lord of Righteousness, like Melchizedek. Adonai Zedek. It's the same basic, similar word. It's just a title for a leader, basically. And uh, uh, so God destroys them and mentions cities like Hebron and Jarmuth and Lachish, Lachish and Eglon. And you should familiarize yourself with the map and where they're located. Hebron is located down here. Beersheba is down here. Uh, Lachish is not on this map, but it's located in this general area up here. So we're dealing with this part of, of Israel. We have the interesting thing with the battle there uh, where God prolongs the daylight. Obviously, it's a miracle. I don't know how to explain it. It's one of the fascinating things. Uh, you got various explanations, such as God halted the rotation of the earth for 12 to 24 hours. The earth spins at a high rate. How's that work? Second, God slowed down the rotation. Third option, the sun's light was refracted through the atmosphere so that while the earth continued to rotate the same rate, it just looked like the sun was still up. Uh, fourth point I make is there are stories from other cultures of a long day in ancient history. And also note that Josh was bold enough to ask for a longer day. Okay, chapter 11, we go into the northern conquest. First the north and first the south and the north. And the victories are summarized at the end of the chapter. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 covers the cities in the north, Machidah, Libna, Lachish, Gezer, Eglon, Devir. And Joshua 10.40 says... Nothing was left. Excuse me, I was I'm misreading. That's all part of the south. That's all part of the south. That was under 9b. 10b, God gives Israel military victory over the north. This is 11, 1 and following. The northern kings form an alliance led by Jabin, the king of Hatzor. And you have various cities in the north, Madon, Shimron, and Aksop. And here Joshua uses an interesting tactic of hamstringing the horses and burning the chariots. Peta would not be happy. Y'all know what Peta is? Yeah, that's bread. No. There is a Peta bread, but this is P-E-T-A, the, uh, 
It's the Animal Rights Act. Yeah, it's, you know, oh. Prevention of cruelty to animals. So here, he goes no. in and hamstrings the horses. So, Peter, I forget what it stands for now. The people for the equitable treatment of animals. That's what. And so these are the these are the people who come out and you got a fur coat on, so they throw paint on you, and <laughs> things like that. So they wouldn't be very happy with God, so they wouldn't like God either, because God has animal sacrifices. We come to the end of chapter 11, 11b in your notes. It's the summary of God's victories in Joshua's conquest. This is from 11.16 to 12.24. Lists the kings and the territories conquered by Moses. 12.8 uh, to 24. Lists the kings and territories conquered by Joshua. Joshua defeats the major power centers, but he never completely removes the Canaanites from the land. This is left to the next generation, which compromises and fails. Then from 13 to 21, this is 3a, top of page 14, God divides up the land among the tribes of Israel. He divides up the land in chapters 13, 14, now through 17. In chapter 20, God is going to designate cities of refuge, and cities for the Levites. Remember, the Levites don't have a possession in the land, so there are certain cities that belong uh, to the Levites. This is further described in chapter chapter 21. Uh, there's a summary of the land and the borders for each tribe and clan in chapter 21. And then the Transjordan tribes are blessed and sent home in chapter 22. Chapter 23, we have Joshua's farewell address which includes, again, a prophecy that you will sin, you will disobey, you will be taken out of the land. In chapter 24, this is 9b, chapter 24, he takes the nation through a covenant renewal ceremony, and this is where, I can find the verse, he makes the very famous statement, you choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay? Now, in terms of the review for the quiz next time, we have one minute left. You need to identify Rahab. That shouldn't be hard. Joshua. Who's the commander of the army? The Lord. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Son. Son. Free part of Christ. AI, what happens in AI? They got defeated first. That's right. And then they won. Aiken, what was Aiken's problem? What about the Gibeonites? They deceived Joshua. And answer the questions, why could the Israelites not defeat AI the first time? What was Joshua's success and what was the major failure? What was his Why success? Was, what was his success? Conquering the land. Major failure was he didn't consult God with the Gibeonites. Why was the holy war valid? Because God had given the Canaanites grace for 500 years. They had rejected God. And God has the right to punish sinners. And then what was the holy war? What were its conditions and why was it just? And that's all that we'll cut out. Okay, any questions? Oh, yes.